Hello, welcome to the Patient Activation Network podcast. I'm your host, Matt Cavallo. I have with me today, Dr. Susan Beagleman. Susan is the Vice President of the Neuroscience Medical Affairs Unit at Genentech. Susan, welcome to the show. Thank you, and thank you so much for having me. Before we get going, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes, I am a vascular medicine trained physician who's now been working here at this company for 11 years and uh, focused on our neuroscience portfolio. Those are um, the work that we're doing in areas related to diseases of the brain and the spinal cord. And you're here to talk about spinal muscular atrophy or SMA. Could you tell us a little bit about SMA, what it is and and Mm -hmm. how it's diagnosed? Absolutely. Spinal muscular atrophy is a genetic disease and in fact is a rare condition, one of the more common rare diseases. And this specific disease uh, affects the nerve cells in the spinal cord that control muscle. So ultimately, if you have a disease that affects your muscles, it's not just affecting your ability to um, walk, but also other areas such as your ability to breathe um, and your ability to eat. So it ultimately results in a loss of strength. This disease is actually one of the most common genetic forms or causes of infant mortality, um, affecting nearly one out of every 11,000 babies born. Now, you're saying it's one of the more common genetic diseases. Is this something that can be detected with newborn screening? Well, that's a, that's a very interesting topic, and it potentially can be detected by newborn screening. Um, with the further advent of potential therapies uh, for this disease, newborn screening is becoming a focus of support both in the community and important to detect so that individuals um, can be accurately treated. So perhaps I could tell you a little bit more about the disease itself, and then we can talk about screening for it, if that's okay. Oh, that sounds perfect. Okay. So what SMA is, is, as I said, a genetic disease, and it's characterized by a lack of a specific protein called survival of motor neuron protein. So I'll call it SMN protein. This protein we all have, and it's found in our bodies, and it's essential to the function of nerves that control muscles as well as some other tissues in the body. So without it, nerve cells can't function properly, and that's what leads to the muscle weakness that can sometimes um, be fatal in individuals with SMA. Now, we talked about, or I mentioned that it's a genetic disease. Uh, We have two types of genes, SMN1 and SMN2, that produce this SMN protein. SMA is caused by a mutation in the SMN1 gene. In individuals without spinal muscular atrophy, SMN1 gene produces the bulk of the functional SMN protein. In individuals with spinal muscular atrophy, they have a mutation in that gene so that the SMN1 gene doesn't produce any or very minimal amounts of SMN protein. We have a gene called, as I mentioned, SMN2, that produces protein but a very small amount that's functional. So in individuals without spinal muscular atrophy, that doesn't matter so much because the SMN1 uh, gene produces enough protein. But in individuals who have SMA due to this genetic mutation, they rely solely on the amount of protein 
produced by the SMN2 gene, which is not enough alone to allow someone not to manifest symptoms. And so it depends upon how many copies of that SMN2 gene that you have to determine how much protein you produce, and it's correlated with the severity of the disease. So there are different types of SMA. Uh, characterizes four primary types, and it's pretty easy to remember. It's types one, two, three, and four. And they these types um, really determine or are associated with the severity of the disease that you have, as well as milestones achieved. So if I may, just to sort of give um, your listeners an understanding of the different types, TYSPO and SMA, which accounts for somewhere between 50 and 60% of all people who have SMA, is typically diagnosed at between birth and six months of age, typically quite early after a child's birth. And it is the most severe of the types. Those impacted will not achieve sitting as a milestone. Um, and unfortunately, these individuals usually die by the age of two if they are not treated with um, any kind of disease-modifying therapy. Individuals with type 2 SMA are diagnosed a little bit later in life, but not much later, sometimes between the age of six months to two years of age. So they're still either uh, really in the infant uh, to toddler stage. And these individuals also have quite severe disease. They experience respiratory issues and are unable to walk. Um, they live much longer lifespan on average, but um, not often a full normal uh, lifespan as someone who does not have SMA. And then type 3 SMA is usually diagnosed a little bit later, anywhere between 18 months and teenage years. So that's quite a wide span. And these individuals can often learn to stand and to walk, but there are a good number of them who will lose the ability to walk as they age. So there's a different sort of level of severity. You have those who can walk, those who can't walk, but um, many of these individuals live sort of an, a, a normal lifespan. And then the last type is the most mild type, type four, usually diagnosed well into adulthood, I would say typically after the age of 35. It is a much rarer form of SMA, and these individuals have slower progression of motor weakness, which may or may not impair walking. So they will lead the most sort of normal functional lives of the four different types of individuals with SMA. So going back to your question about newborn screenings, um, as you mentioned, depending upon the type, certainly infants very early on, particularly with type 1 and to some degree type 2, will have an impact or manifest these motor symptoms, motor meaning the ability to walk, as I said, um, to eat, to potentially breathe. And so... There is a big push now to uh, advance newborn screenings for individuals so that some sort of intervention um, can be done as early as possible. And there's a lot of work being done to look at individuals before they manifest symptoms. So they may have the disease, but as I mentioned, they may not manifest it for a couple months to two, three, four, five months. So the sooner that you can intervene, uh, perhaps the better the outcome of the patient or the, the individual, the infant. And so um, we, we, along with the community, believe that newborn screening is a very important for individuals um, and for the early diagnosis and treatment. And the process for that is really emerging. So it varies by country and even from state to state here in the United States. So there's a lot of work that's being done by uh, the leading advocacy groups, patient groups, 
um, as well as many other uh, organizations, including our own in the space, to really advocate on um, a state-by-state -state basis to include um, newborn screening for this given disease as it is for some of the other genetic diseases. So we currently are proud to partner with CureSMA on their SMA Newborn Screening Coalition, which includes, as I said, a group of advocates as well as ourselves uh, to ask for the inclusion of SMA screening as part of routine newborn screening in every uh, state in the United States. Wow. So you guys are doing some some great work in advocacy and in partnering with uh, mm -hmm. Cure SMA. There's a lot to unpack here, and mm -hmm. there's a lot of clinical stuff. Now, for my non-clinical listeners, mm -hmm. so if, if I'm a parent mm -hmm. and I don't work in the medical field, mm -hmm. I don't know what to expect. You know, what does the diagnosis process look like? And, and what could I, as, as a parent, uh, do to learn more about mm -hmm. my options? Uh, this is excellent questions because for most parents, uh, they don't know that they might carry the gene uh, that would result in spinal muscular atrophy um, and or the gene will sometimes um, appear spontaneously. So there may be no family and often there's no known family history at the time a first child may be born with this disease. And so often the way that a parent would detect something is wrong is that that child's not hitting his or her milestones. So early on there's um uh, an expression called floppy baby syndrome. So people, infants may have weak limbs, prox proximal meaning sort of their shoulders and upper arms or their thighs are very weak. Or um, a baby may not um, hit a milestone such as uh, being able to roll over, being able to sit. Feeding goes irregularly. So I, you know, most parents are looking for the achievement of these milestones as any, any parent would with a newborn baby. And as soon as the parent may detect that something's not quite right, seeking medical advice um, and going to a physician who can then assess that, that baby and do a neurologic test looking for things like strength and reactivity um, and ability to, to grab on to a finger, for example. It, there may be some subtle signs, and sometimes it's, it's pretty evident right off the bat within a couple of months that something's not just not right with that infant. You know, and I was wondering about how evident it would be, like, because mm -hmm. when you think about kids, you know, um, especially being a parent, you want to, you want to give them every benefit of the mm -hmm. doubt, and, and maybe they're speech delayed, so, you know, you might, you might put off going to talk to somebody about that for a while. Mm -hmm. How evident is this stuff? I mean, is it things that we might chalk up to as, you know, maybe they're just a little delayed in doing this mm -hmm. or, you know, are there, are there just telltale signs yeah. that, hey, I need to go see a doctor right away? Well, in part, it's, it's determined by the type of SMA they have, right, which, which in part reflects some how much protein is being um, generated uh, because, as I said, some of these children, you know, and even adults don't get diagnosed until later because they don't start to manifest in other words, show symptoms. Uh, those in infants with type 1, um, in speaking with individuals and family members, it becomes pretty obvious right away that, that their baby is not doing what normal babies might do. And one of the more telltale signs, is, as I, I noted, they, they call this floppy baby syndrome, is that 
is there's a laxity to sort of the muscles and sort of floppiness to the way a child's arms or legs might move. There could be some feeding uh, issues early on. So if a, if, a, if a baby's having trouble processing, whether it's breast milk or formula very early and spitting up or coughing or choking, because it's a muscle disease, you have muscles that you need to, to breathe, to, to feed, to take in food, as well as to move. Uh, often parents will sort of right away realize something's not quite right because typically parents of newborns are, are much more vigilant. It can be a little more difficult when an individual's manifesting or showing symptoms a little bit later in life. That sometimes it might be a milestone delay. But I think it's important to note that this disease is not associated with any cognitive function. What that means is brain function. So specifically the ability to to think to, to react. And so people have normal IQs, for example, with this. It's not a thinking disease. It's a, it's a movement disease, for lack of a better expression. You recently attended the Cure SMA meeting. Could uh-huh. you shed some light on that? Yes. Well, um, what's really exciting in the field as a whole now, and, and for, for families and for, for individuals with this disease, is that it's rapidly advancing both in our understanding of the disease as well as available and emerging treatments. I think one of the things that was really important as we think about how we assess individuals um, and, and babies and infants and children and how they might benefit from any given treatment um, there are quite a few number of scale assessments. We call, we call them scales or motor function scales that are available. So picking up on the last theme um, and was also shared at this meeting is that a parent will bring a child to a physician and then there are different assessments that that physician can do to see not just a general neurologic example, uh, exam, but to see um, specifically break down how that child's motor function works. So one of the pieces of information that was shared in addition to results from some of these studies as well as some of the basic science was work that was done on a motor function measure, which is one of many tools that a physician would have in his or her toolbox or or a physical therapist would have in his and her toolbox to assess a child. And the more that we're able to assess both whether someone has a disease and what they're hitting on their on their um, milestones, but importantly, as new treatments are developed and uh, become available, how a child would respond to them um, and to re- accurately reflect that response is important. And so that's some of the data that was presented at that meeting. I know that SMA is a rare disease, and sometimes rare diseases don't get as much attention as some of the more common diseases. Right. Is there anything out there on the horizon could help bring hope to the SMA community? Yes. What's really exciting for um, people with this disease, as well as their families and their caregivers, is just a few years ago, there were no treatments available, nothing that could alter the course of the disease. And in fact, all the available treatments are what we call supportive care, things like providing physical therapy or feeding tubes um, or comfort-related measures. And by understanding some of the basic biology of the disease, as well as the huge unmet need Many companies, including our own, have invested a lot of resources to advance uh, both the discovery and the development 
of potential therapies that can change the, the course of the trajectory. Um, there are two medicines currently on the market, one of which is an intrathecal administered drug. That means it's a drug that has to be injected into the spinal canal, like a lumbar puncture. Uh, more recently, there is a gene therapy trying to alter the, the gene re sort of replacement um, uh, treatment uh, that just become available. And uh, we are also working on and hope to make available to patients um, pending FDA review and oral treatment therapy. All of these therapies work to serve to try and increase the amount of SMN protein that's produced that would then change the trajectory of the disease for the patient. So there is quite a bit of hope now when there wasn't much hope not too many years ago. And that's a very exciting thing to see for myself as a physician, as well as all of us in the healthcare and medical community. Um, and importantly, working with these patient communities to understand what they, their caregivers and their families need because it's a disease that affects the entire family um, since many of these individuals can't live independently is really important to seeing ongoing success in the field. It's just so great when companies do contribute to the rare disease population and, mm -hmm. and shine a light on on some of those diseases that really don't get the same kind of attention that, that the, the bigger mm -hmm. uh, diseases mm -hmm. get. And, and you know, it's, it's been such a pleasure uh, learning all this information from you today. As we start to get to the close of the show here, is there anything else that you want to share with our, our listeners? Yes, well, I certainly want to let your listeners know that there's plenty of information and support out there if they or they know, someone they know is affected by this disease. Organizations such as Cure SMA, the SMA Foundation, the Muscular Dystrophy Association, and the United Spinal Association, among others, can provide resources for people living with disabilities associated with SMA as well as their families. So I think that's a very important point for your listeners. And um, for those who are more familiar with SMA disease or impacted directly by that, um, I think what's really important to know is the ongoing um, development of uh, medicines in addition to the ones that are currently available, um, such as the one we have uh, at our company, that are now looking to treat individuals of a broad spectrum of ages is, is also on the horizon. I think that's very exciting. Now, if people wanted to learn more information about SMA, where could they go? The organizations that I named earlier, such as um, CureSMA and the SMA Foundation, MDA, all have websites that um, an individual can go to, and uh, I certainly can provide those websites addresses, but have a tremendous amount of resources, information, uh, hotlines in which you can speak to someone for support, um, as well as providing information about treatment options, clinical trials that are out there as well. Um, additionally, we have information for the public on our website here at Genentech to provide some basic information about SMA as well as available clinical trials that we are conducting. If you had to give one piece of advice to a parent that just uh, had their child diagnosed with uh -huh. SMA, what uh -huh. would it be? The piece of advice that I would give 
is that they're, they're not alone. There's a tremendous amount of support for them. And the more information education they have, the better position they will be to support their family member with this disease. And that there is hope in, in treatment options today, as well as on the horizon, uh, that will enable individuals with these diseases to hopefully live longer and more productive and healthier lives, given the condition. Well, Dr. Beagleman, thank you so much for joining us today. We really learned a lot, and we can't thank you enough for the difference you're making in the SMA community. You're welcome, and I'd like to thank you and your audience for your interest and your time today. It's really been a pleasure. She's Dr. Susan Beagleman, Vice President of Neuroscience Medical Affairs Unit for Genentech. I'm Matt Cavallo. This has been the Patient Activation Network podcast. We look forward to bringing you another inspirational story soon.